I'm Asad Sarkat. And I'm Zoe Rosenberg. And you're listening to The Appeal, the Curbed Podcast. People hear the word architecture and they think of a very specific uh, set of conditions. They think of massive transit hubs and beautiful, swooping cultural institutions. But today we're going to be talking to an architect who works at a different scale, too. We're going to be talking with a Tony Award-winning architect. Yes, let that phrase wash over you. And that is David Rockwell of the Rockwell Group. David's work uh, for the stage has garnered him a total six nominations with a win for last year's She Loves Me. And uh, we're going to be talking to him about that work and just what it's like to design for the stage. We'd be remiss if we didn't talk with David about his work in other contexts, everything from hotels to lighting to furniture. So stick around. We like to start every episode with the same question, um, and that is, when you're at a cocktail party, how do you describe what you do? That's a hard question. Um, I say I'm a designer, and Mm -hmm. then sort of let it flow from there. Do you think that people associate the word design with architecture immediately? Um, Or interiors? I find when I start out with the word architect, which Mm -hmm. is really how we define our studio, uh, that then some of the other things we do don't make as much sense <laughs> as if I start out with designer. Right. Um, uh, but but architecture is, you know, um, I think the filter that we look at the world through. And I think it, it just in terms of a point of view, it, it, uh, it informs everything we do. But I start out with designer because it can sort of lead to many conversations. Mm-hmm. It's an all-encompassing word. Yeah. You don't mm. have to hem yourself in. And so, yeah, you mentioned this, but we we know that the firm, you know, is working across categories and working in hospitality and working with cultural institutions. Um, but we wanted to really talk to you today about your work in set design, which is a really fascinating, I think, subset of what people think of when they think of placemaking and the kinds of work that architects do. Um, how did the theater and set design become something that you were interested in and something that you ended up working in in your professional life? Um I guess the best way to begin that answer is my interest in theater probably preceded my interest in architecture, mm-hmm. mainly due to my family. So when we lived on the Jersey Shore, my mom was a, had been a dancer. I'm the youngest of five boys. Okay. So by the time it came around to me, she was mostly <laughs> you know, not dancing. But okay. um, in this little sleepy suburb of New Jersey uh, where we lived, I was born in Chicago, then we moved to New Jersey, uh, there was a community theater and I found that this private, sleepy suburb turned into a big acting out community um, around theater. So I started to hang around and um, I was sort of amazed by the ability to be uh, transformed and to tell stories through music and design. And and then later, um, that evolved into an interest in architecture when we moved to Mexico when I was 12. Uh, and so that was like going from this sleepy suburb <laughs> to a big performance art uh, place in, in Guadalajara was filled with oh, wow. marketplaces and bull rings and, um, and yeah. festivals. So Why Mexico? Was, I'm just super curious why your family left New Jersey for Mexico. You know, uh, it was one of my brothers and I, my three older brothers had left home and gone to college. And my dad um, sold his business and had been thinking about where to live. And we got in a station wagon and went from uh, Deal, New Jersey to Guadalajara, Mexico, with no idea in the world. You know, it's one of those things. In the where station it, wagon? Like you drove? <laughs> we drove. 
That's yeah. incredible. Yeah. It was very I Love Lucy, the whole thing. <laughs> exactly. That's great. And what was fascinating is um, I think my interest in uh, newness and my interest in um, kind of r- ripping up the rules and trying new things was really uh, based on that experience in many ways, sort of ending up in a city where no one spoke English. We didn't, we didn't quite understand the ramifications of it, but it was, it was a phenomenal experience. Mm. Sounds really formative. I mean, I can't imagine being a kid and being in such a new environment and that not having an effect on you. In a place that's so deeply visual. You know, when you think of just the quality of light in uh, in Guadalajara is a a quality I can still conjure up. Well, so uh, you've done quite a lot of work now in set design. You've won um, Drama Desk Awards for She Loves Me, and you've been nominated for Lily Blonde, Hairspray, All Shook Up, and Rocky Horror Picture Show. Um, so I'm really curious, what are some of the challenges that present themselves when designing for the stage? I mean, I think maybe people in the audience are only explicitly concerned with their view um, and that being good from <laughs> mm-hmm. wherever they may be sitting. Uh, but I'd imagine that some other some other challenges present themselves when you are designing for the stage. Well, I think um, the first thing about designing for the stage is it is telling a story. And it's not, and it's what interests me about architecture, frankly, is extracting a point of view and a narrative that's specific to the project. So in theater, you're dealing with a very different toolbox. You're dealing with temporal structures. You're dealing with automation. You're dealing with high integration of lighting. Um, but where they're similar is more interesting to me than where they're different. And where they're similar is the uh, importance of design in creating a place for that emotional connection. Mm. So in a restaurant, there's what everything looks like. But what really is uh, preceding that in terms of design is a layout that dictates what it feels like when you enter a room, how the spaces are connected, what's the relationship of the food to the, to the, to the dining. And in theater, there's a whole set of other issues you're dealing with that, um, that I've always found fascinating. And so I've immersed myself in, in understanding that. And I think in some ways, the theater work makes our architecture better. Mm-hmm. And, and I believe the work as an architect makes our work in theater um, more interesting and more varied. The, the biggest difference is um, in theater, the transformations that happen, happen live in front of an audience. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's never the same. It is always a one-off experience that's never quite the same. And to me, that's uh, just thrilling and um, you know, endlessly fascinating. Yeah, I'm always fascinated when the lights go down for, you know, maybe three, four seconds, and then they come up on a totally new scene. It's it's like magic, really. And you're also dealing with the, the level of craftsmanship, frankly, in automation. We're dealing now with um, buildings that move and dealing with robotics and architecture. And theater has always been such an interesting testing ground for technology. Um, so the level of craft is is really inspirational. And we've been, I mean, it's been a dream come true to... Um, to be able to revisit my earliest interest in theater, it was never part of my plan. Mm-hmm. Um, the truth is, um, I took a year off of school from architecture school. Mm-hmm. I worked for a Broadway lighting designer in 1978 as, a, as an assistant. Everyone was mean. Everyone <laughs> hated each other. Uh-huh. And I, I loved the person I worked with. But I came out of that thinking, okay, I've had that experience. Right. Uh, and it was... A, it was um, 
I went back to architecture school with a commitment that that's what I was interested in is uh, developing architecture with a sort of point of view of, of theater. And then many years later, as I started to think about it um, and actually write about it and think about the relationship of architecture and theater, you mentioned the curtain comes up and there's a new set. I think the analogy is in architecture, when you walk through a pair of doors, when you enter Radio City Music Hall and you enter that lower vestibule, that choreographed process is as theatrical as any directed piece of theater, but it's built environment. In theater, you get to have that happen live in front of an audience. Mm. Or not, if it doesn't work. (laughs) The, The first performance of Hairspray, which was my second Broadway show in Seattle, Mm. um, the curtain came up, and she came out to sing Good Morning Baltimore, and the house didn't turn. And Baltimore wasn't there. (laughs) No no Baltimore. Oh, no. So what happened? I looked for a muscle relaxant. I couldn't find one. (laughs) The curtain came down, and the stage manager said, we'll be back in three or four minutes. And of course, I assumed everyone in the theater was looking at me saying, well, why didn't your house turn around? When the curtain came back up, the audience was insane with enthusiasm about embracing uh, Tracy Turnblad. And that's something that's really, and you mentioned the word magic, Zoe, and I think something about the theater that always gets me in relation to the sets themselves is that immediate sense of interaction with Mm. the people that are experiencing this space. I mean, obviously, the, the, the way in which someone as an audience member is experiencing the space is very different if you're, you know, physically walking through a space. But you get, or you can get in some instances, immediate kind of feedback and gratification and and enthusiasm and applause that you probably don't get <laughs> as an architect if you're working <laughs> on a traditional, you know, uh, museum or something. Uh, that might happen on opening day, but then from that point, you're not really getting the same immediate and feedback. And there is a kind of real-time collaboration between... Uh, chore- choreographer, lighting, design, stage direction that um, I find extraordinary. Yeah, let's talk about that because I'm actually really curious how you uh, manage all of those kind of disparate elements of the very holistic design process that designing for the stage entails. Any project of, of any kind in our studio um, begins with uh, research and, and, and trying to define the narrative. In the case of a piece of theater, the narrative is on the page, and the designer's job, is a friend of mine who's a director once said, is you don't want to put a hat on a hat. <laughs> so you're not, your job is not to literally tell the same story. Your job is to support the telling of the story. An example um, that's that's relevant is uh, Falsettos, uh, which is a production that opened last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, Falsettos was a piece I was familiar with, directed by James Lapine, an amazing author and amazing director, and had studied graphic design. Um, Bill Finn had written the music. And it deals with a group of people in New York, late 70s, early 80s. It was two one-acts put together. And um, as I sat with the director and talked about it, what was, what was most interesting is how this group of seven people on stage um, kept reconfiguring the landscape of their life, marriages, separations, reconnections. And, um, and we decided to tell that story through uh, abstraction, and every piece of the show is on stage in a kind of cube 
as the piece begins and then unfold that and rearrange that. And that is taking the, the kind of DNA of the piece and synthesizing it down to um, very few variables. Um, but that, that came after many months of, um, of trying other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that uh, Falsetto's got an endorsement by one of my most beloved celebrities, Ina Garten. So... Oh, it got the Ina stamp of approval. It, it did. It got the <laughs> Ina stamp of approval. Fantastic. I love hearing that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so in addition to doing all of this design for the stage, you've done work in the um, hospitality space. You did the New York Edition Hotel, which is the former MetLife Tower. Um, Amazing on, building. Oh, you yeah. know, I, I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, but I haven't been yet. I would love to go. I have been, and I will say, and I'm not just saying this because you are present it is great. Like when you have a chance to go, definitely do. I went for uh, an event and it was fabulous. So, and it's one of those buildings I've got to say I've looked at for so many years as a New Yorker <laughs> right. and coveted from the outside. Yeah. So when we we're invited to, to work on the design, that was amazing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, in in addition to doing these designs on um, hotel spaces and uh, you've done some nightclubs, you did the Omnia in Las Vegas. Yeah. Um, I, you started to touch on this earlier, but um, what are some of the similarities between designing for these hospitality spaces and for the stage? I think the thing that links them, and, and we we uh, put out a book, uh, I, I wrote a book called What If <clears throat> last year that was a look at um, our work and in some ways an analysis of the last 10 years of work. And so it's easy when you're looking in the rearview mirror to find what sort of connects that. But one of the things that I, uh, I think we're most interested in a stu- as a studio in is designing spaces where people connect in real time. And I think as there's more and more interest in virtual community and, um, you know, you think about uh, the, the ability to be connected at all times, I think the single thing that, that propels the work in hospitality the work in theater, the work in airports, the work in hospitals uh, is um, creating places for those kind of um, connections. So today we are in the studio with none other than Curved Managing Editor Jess Daly. Hello, hello. Um, and we, we wanted to talk about something that we know uh, divides America, <laughs> but is not the election because we're all fucking tired of that shit (laughs) and that is holiday decorations didn't see that coming did (laughs) you um so i i was raised muslim i did not grow up celebrating christmas so the decorations were just like already going to be an oddity to me but i wonder like did both of your families zoe and jess did you have like christmas decorating traditions that you still abide by jess you're nodding so oh heck yeah (laughs) We, my family has celebrated Christmas my whole entire life. It's a really big deal. It's the one holiday where everybody comes to my house. They come to our house now for, uh, my parents' house now for Christmas dinner. Um, We, the first Sunday in December was always the Sunday when we would go and cut down our Christmas tree. I grew up in Western Pennsylvania. What a beautiful tradition. Yeah, we would go with our family and friends and 
uh, you'd have cookies and cider in the parking lot as it was snowing. And then <laughs> that's that's so very, bucolic. Very <laughs> <laughs> and then it, you know, as it's progressively gotten warmer in the world, it's always like, <laughs> it's like 65 degrees <laughs> yeah, exactly. cutting down a Christmas tree. But yeah, we would always go and cut down our tree. Uh, we live, our living room now has like cathedral ceilings. So as young Casual. children, we were always like, <laughs> we need the biggest tree ever. And of course. I have two sisters. And so it was always my dad who was tasked with, you know, doing all the manual labor of getting a 12-foot tree into our home. <laughs> but uh, then we would always decorate it together. And my mom does, um, you know, garland on the stairs. And we each have our own stocking that my mother has uh cross-stitched for us this is like this is like home alone (laughs) this sounds just so tasteful yes it is we don't my my mom is very very great about not going overboard we would always um there was this one street near where my grandparents live that it was like a contest for the homes to see who could be the gaudiest (laughs) (laughs) and they would just buy like every plastic or inflatable Christmas decoration and shove it in their front yard mm. and it was just this whole street it was like a, it was like a Christmas show that we would go to every year to just check out how terrible these homes looked that sort of trumps my experience with bad decorations but um, this is something that I still haven't truly processed to this day but the uh, leader of the beautification board of my hometown um, just has the worst Taste in decorating their home. Do we want to say where you're from or do we not want to call out the beautification director? I was going to say, what kind of town has a beautification director? (laughs) It's like Pawnee, Indiana. (laughs) The Parks and Rec town. No, it is a lovely little seaside town outside of Atlantic City. But this person decorates their home to high hell for every holiday. Like Christopher Columbus Day. Yes, inflatable things what? on the front lawn. That's yes. ridiculous. Christmas. My God, I can't imagine their neighbors ever sleep. There's like probably eight thousand bulbs like on <laughs> one section of the roof alone. But uh, yes, this is the head That's of our beautification ridiculous. board. But growing up in in that town, my decorations at our house were much more tasteful and usually constrained to a seasonal garland on the front door. So, so we all live in New York City. Are you mm. decorating your, you know? Smaller than uh, suburban family home sized yeah. apartments and in holiday decorations. Oh, our my like my apartment in New York. Yeah, I get a Christmas tree okay. every year. It has um, progressively gotten like taller since I've lived in New York. Like my first tree in New York was like a foot and a half, like a Charlie Brown sized tree. Yeah, <laughs> and now last year it was like the size. It was as tall as me, so like five seven. But um, I think that's you know the max that you can do in a New York City apartment around Christmas time. It's still pretty bold. You know, Christmas trees are fun, and my mom has made me take all of my ornaments that I had as a child, so <laughs> they all so say cute. Jessica. Oh <laughs> so our Christmas tree is just like filled with ornaments that have my name on them. <laughs> Welcome is- to my home. <laughs> Look at my Christmas tree. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of like for anything else, I don't really decorate. I am. Um, when I was a kid, I liked to do like the like window stickies for like Easter mm-hmm. and Thanksgiving mm-hmm. and Halloween. But this year, I didn't even carve a pumpkin. Oh, me neither. Oh, that's when you know that your childhood is like dead. <laughs> it's like <laughs> didn't even carve a pumpkin. If you have plans of your own for the holiday season, either Thanksgiving, Christmas, uh, Festivus, whatever it is you're out there celebrating, please do tweet at us. We want to see your insane photos or just photos of houses in your neighborhood. I'm always morbidly fascinated yeah. by those. You can tweet at us at the curb appeal. 
Yeah, something that I find really fascinating is how much uh, Airbnb and other like internet-based companies have really affected the hospitality industry and how I think customers' tastes even maybe even on the the super luxury end, although that's not my personal experience <laughs> um, as a traveler. Uh, but that customers' tastes are starting to skew more kind of homey and um, uh, familiar rather than uh, traditional kind of hotel design. When they go to travel, they expect something that feels like a home that they can live out of for you know a predetermined length of time, however long they're on vacation. Mm. Um, and the experience of going to the addition kind of. For me, in that, you know, the, for the event that I went to, it's kind of a balance of that. It's like this wonderful luxury space that also feels like a place you could kick back, which is, you know, balancing luxury and like accessibility is very difficult to do. I, I totally agree. And, and what I, would you attribute? Were there some design moves that you made that you think you would, you know, attribute to uh, fostering that that vibe in the space? Well, I think the whole notion of luxury is is so shifting. And you just think about dining, for instance, where luxury used to be a two-hour, three-hour meal. And now right. luxury is getting an hour and a half back to do other things. <laughs> right. uh, and in, um, in a hotel, you know, everything is under a microscope. When you think about how much time you spend in a hotel room analyzing whether or not you can dim the lights from the end table, whether every channel is available, whether hot water is instantly available. There's a level of demand. Mm -hmm. So in addition to all those logistical demands, I think uh, hotels are the most wonderful kind of fantasy. Um, you go to a city and you get to pick what that fantasy is going to be for that night. You sort of get to, uh, in some ways, define a certain part of yourself based on where you stay. And I think luxury used to be more sort of consistent. There were things that were associated with luxury. Mm -hmm. um, with the addition, one of the things we thought about is, what would a modern contemporary version of the Dakota be like? Mm -hmm. So if you took that sense <laughs> of like New York tradition, rich right. molding, um, vaulted ceilings, but translated that into a, a contemporary vocabulary. So that was one of the, the points of view. Um, there were also some amazing spaces. The restaurant, um, which may be where you had your event, those were all landmark spaces. That mm -hmm. when we got in there to start working on it, it looked like a set from Barton Fink. It was you know <laughs> bad shag carpet, and um, so it just needed to be kind of restored and then lit and beautifully uh, opened up. I mean, it definitely that the the effort and attention definitely came across just there. I was there for you know an hour, but. It's a great hour. So great hour. I can't wait to have my great hour. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, another project that you're working on at the moment is the shed at Hudson Yards, which is this sort of unprecedented kind of building. Um, for those listening in who are not familiar with the design, it's a retractable uh, performance space that is being described by your firm as quote radically flexible design for a performance structure. Um, I'm wondering, is this a model for building that you can see being adapted elsewhere? Or is this something that's particular to, to Hudson Yards, which is just a fantastic fantasy project? Well, um, the shed uh, is a uh, partnership with Dillard's Cafidio Renfro that began in um, late 2008. Um, so it's a project we've been on with them from the very beginning. And uh, it's... it's um, a new cultural institution uh, off of the High Line. 
that is really conceived around the idea of supporting artists, visual and performing artists. And that's been the driver from the very very beginning is um, flexibility that truly uh, is operable as opposed to flexibility that's so flexible that no one does anything with it. <laughs> right. um, so it's been uh, you know, a totally fascinating experience um, with uh, a great team. And in terms of it being a model, I think in some ways it picks up on existing models of – uh, you know, less hardware and more software, more adaptable spaces that can do many different things. So as a, as a structure, it, um, it's built on the premise of being able to shift and move from uh, visual to performing arts in, in really intriguing ways. And, um, you know, it's an amazing project to be on board. Hudson Yards as a whole, and, and the shed is a separate project that is sits within Hudson Yards, but is also accessed from Northern Chelsea on 30th Street. So it's kind of the extension of the city grid. Um, but it's amazing to see the transformation of the west side of Manhattan from the, the Whitney all the way up to, uh, to 42nd Street. I think we're seeing a kind of shift in the center of gravity of the city. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, entire, incredible. it's It's a, an entirely new neighborhood. I mean, mm. I don't think that this kind of urban... Uh, I hesitate to even call it urban renewal because it's really just like a whole scale, a wholesale yeah. rethinking of what this urban space will be in the future. I don't think we've seen something like this in New York ever. It's also built on space scale. that didn't exist before, right? You know, over the rail yards, and and I think the High Line has. Uh, and I remember walking on the High Line when the friends of the High Line were just organizing in the very earliest days, and it seemed like a kind of un, uh, unachievable dream that that would now be. As successful it is, and I mean uh, the most tourist thronged place in New York City, I other than Times Square. Yeah, I don't think anyone realized how how successful it would be. I I believe I just saw the statistic that five million people visit a year. Wow, and that's quite a lot. And considering that it's an outdoor space, and a yeah. lot of those months in the year are going to be freezing. You know, it, you know, it it goes back to one of the ideas that I think is so powerful in theater, and that's choreography. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. being able to move at a different elevation from the city. You know, movement is so seductive. When um, when we began work on the JetBlue terminal at JFK, um, JetBlue uh, was concerned about the 20, I think it's 20 million people that would move through the terminal at one time or through, per, per the year. And I said, why don't we think about choreography and movement? And uh, we actually brought in a choreographer to think about pattern and movement because as much as they were concerned about it, isn't one of the things that's thrilling about the city is coexisting with all these other people and sort of understanding movement patterns. So I, I think the High Line is sort of this pure movement pattern that is um, amazingly seductive. I love that analogy. That is great. Yeah. I want to ask you uh, what two projects you're working on right now that you're excited about and that you can talk about, because I'm sure there are things that you can't tell us. I mean, you're also welcome to spill the beans about anything right now. Please. Hopefully, we're going to keep the beans in the bag. <laughs> um, we're working on a renovation of the Helen Hayes Theater, uh, which is one of, I believe, 50 Broadway theaters. It's the smallest theater. Mm. And I can't say too much about it other than it's for Second Stage, which is this great contemporary non-for-profit. Um, and... It's been an extraordinary journey uh, going back to the roots of the Helen Hayes Theater, which was the Little Theater in 1912, and sort of tracking uh, what it could become. Uh, 
And uh, I also have to say, um, working with landmarks, which many people perceive as a kind of challenge, um, they've been unbelievably great mm. at helping and supporting reimagining what that would be. So the renovation of the Helen Hayes Theater, the shed we already talked about, um, we're in the process of finishing Union Square Cafe, mm -hmm. wow, okay. which is moving from 16th Street uh, after 25 years mm -hmm. or 30 years, I think. And we're also in the process of taking Nobu, which was our first project with the Nobu Group in 94 and moving that to 195 Broadway. So it's a chance to um, think about what made those places so great and then translate those to kind of a new audience. So those are... In fact, those all link with the Helen Hayes Theater. In some ways, those are giving rebirth to spaces. So those are very much on my mind at the moment. Oh, exciting. We like to do something that we call uh, a thunder round. And we call it that because it is uh, a little slower than a lightning round, but it's the same concept. <laughs> it's a lightning round for architects. <laughs> yes, exactly. We didn't say See, look at that. Look at that branding magic. Yeah. <laughs> now, we have a, now we have a tagline for it. Thank you, David. My pleasure. <laughs> Can you name a stage or film director with whom you'd like to work on sets? Julie Taymor. Mm, that's a good one. God, The Lion King was such a formative musical experience for me as a kid. Um, like, watching that, it was like it was like you know opening. It was like turning on Technicolor after Black and White. It was mm -hmm. really just yeah, and, and a great combination of high tech and low tech. Um, if you could design the sets for anything, from the Olympics opening ceremony to a music video, what would it be? Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> Super easy question. I have trouble with synth you know bringing it down to one. Probably, uh, well, I really have to say I've been fascinated with Olympic opening ceremonies. Mm. Um, but after China, I think the door has to be shut for a while just because they sort of nailed that door shut. It was so incredible. Yeah, it mm. was pretty amazing. Um, you know, I did do the movie Team America with the South Park guys. That was unbelievable. Um, I would like to do a new play uh, that takes place in a pop-up theater in uh, a park in New York mm. that uh, is theater in the round. Um, a, a Very specific set of constraints, yeah. but I like it. <laughs> you know, I didn't say what the play was, but a, a new play that okay. um, that could be done in a, in a pop-up theater. I'm going to slow this lightning down, round down a little bit. Were we going by too asking, fast? No, just by asking, why outside? What is it about working for the stage in a park setting that is so intriguing. If you were to say, what are my favorite spaces in the city, it's probably parks. Um, I think they're the thing that makes cities sort of most livable. They're kind of like the, the mixing chambers of the city. Hmm. Uh, and um, I think theaters, uh, as wonderful as they are, are hermetically sealed conditions. And I like the idea of um, sort of uh, branching that out. And I've seen, you know, the Delacorte Theater, I think, is one of the miracles of New York. Absolutely. Uh, raccoons and all that run across <laughs> the stage. So I just think that would be an interesting project that would um, connect my interest in architecture, my interest in temporal structures and storytelling. We know that you travel quite a bit for work, but what is your favorite hotel that you didn't design? Well, um, one would clearly be the Cipriani. 
uh, in Venice, mm. just because it's so surreal and the setting is so incredible. You know, it's so interesting. So much of my travel is defined by if it's business travel, not just what the hotel looks like, but how invisible the service is. Mm -hmm. And it sort of goes to what luxury is becoming. It's becoming, you know, not obvious service. Um, so there's hotels I like going to just because they're easy to get in and out of. The Langham in Chicago in a Mies van der Rohe building, mm -hmm. the old IBM building is an amazing place to stay. Well, good, uh, useful travel tips for us. I mean, I hope one I get day. to stay at the Cipriani. Yeah. One, <laughs> we'll make it day. happen. I got to, the first time I stayed there, I stayed in a room the size of a mop closet and, <laughs> and it was still unbelievable. <laughs> You're off in Venice after all. Off season, the mop closet was fine. All right. So I'll go book it after this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, thank you so much. It yes, was great to chat with much. you. Thank you. A real pleasure. You just listened to another episode of A Curved Appeal. If you liked what you heard, head on over to iTunes and subscribe. Yes, and you can also find us in the podcast section of the Spotify app. If you want to know more about David's work, you can head over to rockwellgroup.com and you can always get updates from us at The Curved Appeal on Twitter.